Well, the way that, that we use hope, the word hope in, in English language today and in the context of the culture that we live in, it often carries with it a, a different kind of meaning than it does within the scriptures. You know, students, if I were to ask you, um, did, did you ace the test that you took this previous week? You'd probably likely respond by saying, well, I hope so, right? Or maybe you apply for a new job and, and someone asks you whether or not you got the job, but you don't know yet, and you say, well, I hope so. Uh, maybe some of you filled out brackets this year to compete against your family members or coworkers as uh, March Madness basketball took place uh, this past month, and it's about to end on Monday. And if, if I would have asked you at the beginning, before any games happen, if you have the perfect bracket, I'm sure that if you filled one out before in previous seasons, you probably would have responded with a very doubtful, I hope so, right? And even if you were more optimistic and this was the first bracket you ever filled out, I'm sure that your hopes were shattered after the first or second round, like mine was. We often use the term hope this way when we're talking to others, right? And when we use it this way, it communicates doubt, uncertainty, because we really have no grounds, we have no solid foundation to know with certainty that what we desire to happen in the future will come about. It will happen. But biblical hope is different. One writer defines biblical hope as a confident expectation or assurance based upon a sure foundation for which we wait with joy and full confidence. In other words, there's no doubt about it. You know, it involves us looking forward with a confident expectation that, that what we are promised in Christ will come about because those promises are built on a solid and firm foundation. And so it's not a, a we hope so when it comes to the promises of Jesus. Now we hope, we hope so. We hope that maybe this will happen in the future. Instead, it is we have a hope and it is sure and it is certain. However, it can be easier said than done to live with a confident hope as followers of Jesus as we're in a constant battle with the influence of the world around us and as we're struggling with our own sinful flesh. If, for example, our, our feelings or our emotions are, are always changing. And if, if, if yours are like mine, then it's, it's like a roller coaster. You know, maybe you're doing great today, you feel great today, but let's say tomorrow you struggle with a specific sin and, and become really discouraged and downcast because of how you felt in that moment. And if we were to, to base our view of how God views us and how we view Him off of how we feel in those moments, which is, is very subjective, then you could understand how easy it it could be to, 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 li to, to live with a lack of, of confident hope in those moments, which is why it's so important for us to allow God's objective truth, His Word, to shape how we view Him and how He views us in those moments, which is one of the reasons why the assurance of forgiveness that we read together during our service is so important. It's one of the ways that God reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ that is built upon the solid foundation, which doesn't change no matter how we feel in certain moments. And so today we're going to, to take a break from uh, working through the Gospel of John, which Andy 
Pastor Andy's been working through, and he asked me to preach on our new Assurance of Forgiveness passage, which comes from uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is going to be our Assurance of Forgiveness passage for this quarter of the year. And so my hope for us today is, one, that we'll just be able to better understand what this passage is saying, but also that we'll be encouraged to, and, and if you want to write this down, this is our main idea, live with a confident hope that our salvation is secured in Christ. So live with a confident hope that our salvation is secured in Christ. But how do we do this? And so our, our two sub-points today will be, one, be reminded of the foundation of our hope. So one, be reminded of the foundation of our hope. And then two, look forward to what we are guaranteed. So look forward to what we are guaranteed. So if you can, please take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And as you turn there, I just want to give us a brief context of the passage of this book and, and of this specific passage before we dig into it. And so as you turn there, Paul wrote this letter uh, to a church in Rome that is, is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And there, and there are many different reasons why he wrote this book, but the main one that we need to know about today is that he wanted to strengthen their beliefs in the gospel. You know, they know the gospel, but he wants them to have an even deeper understanding of these truths. You know, in the first four chapters of Romans, Paul taught them, and he, he teaches us, that whether we are Jew or Gentile, we're all without excuse, and we're trapped in our sin. And there's no way to get ourselves out of that trap. It's like what he says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of his glory. And we can only be justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone, as he teaches in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, which is where our new assurance of forgiveness passage comes from, Paul transitions into teaching about what has resulted from us being justified before God. And so as we look at our text, let's first be reminded of the foundation of our hope. And so let's look together at verses 6 through 8 as we try to better understand what this is. And Paul wrote in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You know, the foundation that our hope is built upon is the cross of Christ. Paul says that Jesus died for those who are weak. That's you and me, that's us. And he did this before we ever made a move towards him, sought him out, and had any love that existed within us for him. You know, similar to what John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And he died for us while we were his enemies, sinners, and godly, and righteous. And he didn't die for us because he looked at us and saw some desire within us to end that hostility and that enmity that existed between us and him. Or that there was something good within us that Jesus saw which swayed him to lay down his life for us. No, God sent Jesus at exactly the right time to die for, for you and I, we who are weak. And we can see in the scriptures that he had planned this moment before the foundation of the world. You know, a moment in history that actually happened. And that all the Old Testament was pointing forward to. It's a moment in history that, that we as a church, we, we try to help each other remember by proclaiming to each other, but also we try to proclaim this truth to others. 
You know, especially during this, this upcoming week, which is going to be Holy Week, that Jesus, at the, the right time, willingly came to lay down his life for the week and to accomplish something that, that we could not accomplish for ourselves. The cross of Jesus, it is the foundation for why we can live with a confident hope. And if that's not enough, Paul further solidifies our hope by showing us that in the next two verses that God sent Jesus to the cross to display his love for us. You know, a love that cannot be matched. Let's continue by looking at verse 7. Paul wrote, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And so Paul gives these two examples in verse 7. First, he writes that one will scarcely or rarely die for a righteous person. You know, a righteous person being here being someone who generally does what is right in the eyes of others, not someone who is unjust or who lives their lives constantly doing wrong by, by others or, or breaking the laws. You know, I had someone who came into uh, our store, the store that I work at uh, last Saturday, which if you, don't, if you don't know, I work at a flooring store. We sell laminate and hardwood and things like that. But I had a customer who I worked with that came in and tried to steal a, a thousand square feet of flooring. And you might ask, well, how can you steal a thousand square feet of flooring? Uh, well, there's a scam that's going around where someone will rent a truck and then they'll use a, um, a, a stolen credit card or a fake check and they'll come in with a story that involves them needing flooring right away and, and, and they'll pay us right away and they, they take the flooring leave and then we never see them again and then the store is out two to three thousand dollars. Well thankfully we prevented that from happening but this is an example of someone who does not do right by others or live according to the law set by society. And I can promise you that the people that I work with including myself we were pretty angry, we were frustrated that someone would be willing to do this. And needless to say, it would have been difficult to find someone in that building at that moment who would be willing to lay down their life for that man. But Paul is writing that for someone who does live rightly within society, who keeps the letter of the law, and who does what is right by others, that we would even be hard-pressed to find someone willing to die for a person like that. But Paul takes it a step even further in the second half of verse 7 by writing, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And so he says that it would be hard for us to find someone willing to die for a righteous person, but to make his point even further, he says maybe, just maybe, you would be willing to find someone who would be willing to die for a good person. You know, a good person being someone who does what is right, but who also has a genuineness about them. You know, as Leon Morris puts it, they have a warmth of good feeling about them, a generosity in their actions. You know, maybe you know someone like this, someone who's genuine and kind, and, and they, they do a lot of good things for others. They have a, a, a genuine warmth about them. Paul is saying that maybe you would find, be able to find someone willing to die for someone like this, but even this would be rare. And so it would be difficult for us to find someone willing to die for a righteous person or a good person. But imagine trying to find someone willing to lay down their lives for an enemy. If, for example, we're all likely somewhat familiar with the war that's been going on uh, for a year in Ukraine. I'm sure that it would be impossible for us to find 
a Ukrainian soldier who would be willing to, to take a bullet for the president of Russia right now. I mean, they are enemies. There's hostility. There's enmity that exists between them. But Paul describes the greatness of God's love for those he sent Christ to die for, for us, in a similar but even greater way. Paul wrote in verse 8, But God, even though it, almost, it's, it is almost impossible for us to find someone willing to die for a righteous or a good person, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while you and I, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. While we were, as he already, already mentioned, weak and ungodly, and he'll mention in verse 10, his enemies. And not because of, of anything that he had done wrong, but because of our sinfulness. God displayed his love for us by sending his only son to die for us. And how did Christ die for us? He died as our substitute. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, this truth that we are in need of a substitute to take our place, one who could take on our sin and pay the penalty for it, is communicated. You know, in Leviticus, we can see how God commanded his people to offer up animal sacrifices to temporarily atone for their sins. And it's, it's really clear in Leviticus 16 where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice a bull to atone for his, sin, his own sins, but also the sins of his family. And then he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people. He would then take another goat, place his hands on the head of that goat, and confess the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites on that goat. And someone would carry that goat out into the wilderness where it carried on itself the sins of the people until the next year when it needed to take place again. You know, those animals served as substitutes in the place of the people. But this only provided temporary atonement and pointed forward to the need for a greater substitute and a greater atonement which would come. But God was beginning to teach them about their need for this. And we can also see in Isaiah 53 where God prophesies through Isaiah, in which uh, I think Trevor read earlier, he prophesied this over almost 700 years before Jesus would even come, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And Jesus was the one that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to. He was the one who would be pierced and crushed and chastised, so that through his wounds we would be healed. Like what Paul says in one of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he wrote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God the Father sent Christ to stand in our place as the perfect sinless sacrifice, and he took on our sin upon himself as our substitute, and he went to the cross to take on the wrath of God that we deserved in order that we who were his enemies would become his sons and his daughters. And so we live with a confident hope that our salvation will be brought to a completion, that it is secured in Christ by being reminded that the foundation of our hope is. It's the cross of Christ where God's love was for us was put on display. But we also need to, secondly, look forward to what this guarantees. 
You know, Paul continues in verses 9 through 10 to explain how if God has laid this foundation for us through the work of Christ on the cross, then we can live with a confident hope that our salvation will be brought to a completion. You know, listen to what Paul wrote in verse 9. He wrote, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And he writes that for, for anyone who is trusted in Jesus and his substitutionary death and atonement for us, then we've been justified by his blood. And that, that foundational work paved the way for our justification, or it's just another way to describe us as being declared right and acceptable before God. It's our legal standing before God. You know, I like the way uh, Anthony Carter puts it. He writes, Justification is God's declaration that sinners are in a right and acceptable relationship with him based solely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the benefits of which are received by faith alone. According to the Bible, this justification comes to those who believe through the blood of Christ. You know, isn't this great? You know, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've been united to him by faith, then you've also been declared right and acceptable before God. Not because of anything that you or I have done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished as our substitute. And what Paul is saying here is that if you've been justified by his blood, then with an absolute certainty, not, not an I hope so, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, but an absolute certainty, there is no doubt that you or I will also be saved from the wrath of God to come. And the kind of wrath that Paul is referring to here is a future wrath. He's, he's talking about the day of judgment where God's wrath will be poured out on those who have never received Christ by faith. Paul actually describes this day of judgment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9. through 9. He writes about how the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But Paul writes that if we've been justified or declared righteous before God, then, then we can also look forward and know that we will be saved from this wrath to come. In verse 10, Paul continues focusing on how we can look forward with a confident hope by writing something similar to what he wrote in verse 9. But by giving another reason why we could look forward with hope, he writes in verse 9, take a look, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now at one point, we were enemies with God. As Paul wrote, and while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death, through the death of Christ. And so if you've trusted in Jesus, then you're not only justified, but you've also been reconciled to God through Jesus' death. And reconciliation means that, that the relationship that we were created to have with God, which was broken because of our sin, has now been restored. We're no longer enemies of God. We're friends of God. And what Paul is saying here is that if our relationship with God has been restored, then with absolute certainty, again, you know, not I, I hope so, but with absolute certainty, there's no doubt that you or I will also be saved by his life. And so what does he mean when he says that we'll be saved by his life? 
What I believe that Paul means when he says that is that not only can we be assured that our salvation is secure because of his substitutionary death on the cross for us, but also because he rose from the grave, and right now he appears before God the Father on our behalf as our representative, you know, who's interceding for us. And our salvation will be brought to a completion because of his never-ending work of interceding for we who have been reconciled to Jesus. Like the writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews chapter 7 says. So according to this passage, we can see why we should be able to live with a confident hope that our salvation is secured in Christ. You know, as we're reminded of the foundation of our hope, which is the cross of Christ. And as we look forward to what we're guaranteed, you know, being saved from his wrath to come. And our salvation being brought to a completion because he rose and he's interceding for us. And an understanding of these truths should lead us to rejoice, as Paul wrote in the final verse for today, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so we rejoice that God has restored that relationship that was once broken. And we rejoice with a confident hope that our salvation is secure in Jesus. However, we all know that it can be very easy for us to forget these truths whenever we're struggling with sin and we're suffering. It can be very easy for us to forget the foundation of our hope and to doubt His love for us. It can be easier to begin to, to base our view on God and how He views us based off of how we feel in those moments rather than on the objective truth of God's Word, His promises which, which never change. And this leads to discouragement, it leads to doubt, it leads to lack of assurance. And so how can we be on guard against giving in to this when we're tempted to? Well, I just have two practical ways that we can do this. You know, the first being, be, dil be diligent in proclaiming this truth to ourselves. So be diligent in proclaiming this truth to ourselves. You know, a pastor named uh, Paul Tripp, he says it pretty well. He wrote, no one is more influential in your life than you are. Because no one talks to you more than you do. You are in an unending conversation with yourself. You are t talking to yourself all the time, interpreting, organizing, and analyzing what's going on inside you and around you. You're constantly involved in an internal conversation that greatly influences the things you decide to say and do. What do you regularly tell yourself about yourself, about God, and about your circumstances? Do your words to yourself encourage faith, hope, and courage? Or do they stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near, or do you reason within yourself that, given your circumstances, He must be distant? And so what are we telling ourselves? You know, when we're discouraged because of our sin, are we quick and diligent to repent of our sin and remind ourselves of this truth? Or do we forget to do this and continue to dwell on how we failed and how we've messed up? Now, there's a reason why in our service, the order of our service, the assurance of forgiveness comes right after the confession, prayer of confession. Because we shouldn't spend a long time dwelling on our sin and we should be quick to look to Christ. And this does not come naturally to sinners like us, right? You know, it's hard work to be diligent in proclaiming these truths to ourselves. And there are many examples uh, within the scriptures of those who had to fight hard to be diligent in fighting this temptation 
uh, to remain downcast and discouraged. You know, it's hard not to flip through the Psalms and to see examples like this. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 42, verse 5, he, he wrote, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. You know, he's, he's preaching to himself. And he's being diligent to remind himself where his hope is found, even as he's, he's downcast and even as he's discouraged. And that's what we have to do as well. You know, we do this by memorizing our, our new assurance of forgiveness passage. We, we memorize other passages like this so that throughout the day we can, we can meditate on these truths and be quick to look to Jesus when we're tempted to give up because of our discouragement. You know, the Spirit of God uses this to renew our minds and our confidence in Him. And so be diligent in proclaiming this truth to ourselves. But lastly, be diligent in proclaiming this truth to others, to each other. You know, another reason for us to be diligent in proclaiming this truth to ourselves is, is that it also equips us to proclaim this truth to each other when the time is right. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, God comforts us in our affliction so that we may, may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And if we see someone else who is discouraged and downcast, then don't be afraid to talk to them, pray with them, be diligent, and be diligent in, in proclaiming this truth to them. That's why God calls us to worship together corporately as, as the body of Jesus. He uses the, the reading of Scripture, the singing of these truths. He uses the assurance of forgiveness as opportunities for us to be able to speak these truths to one another and, and allow the Spirit of God to remind us of these truths and, and why we can live with a confident hope that our salvation is secured in Jesus. And also another way for us to be reminded of these truths as a body of Christ is through the partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to, to transition into right now together. Um, you know, Here at, at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe that this, the Scriptures clearly teach that when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, that no way when we, we take the bread and, and we take the cup, in no way does this play a role in saving us. You know, salvation is found in Christ alone, and we receive it by faith alone in Christ. However, Christ, He's commanded us as His people to partake in this table of this bread and this cup together to remember his body that was broken for us and to remember his blood that was shed for us to atone for our sins. It's a way that we worship him through proclaiming these truths to each other as we take this together. And the scriptures are also clear that if, if you've not trusted in Jesus, then you should not partake of the bread and the cup. And so we ask that you please let the bread and the cup pass by if you have not placed your faith alone in Christ to save you. And also we ask that if you've not been baptized, which is a first step of obedience that Christ commands of us, and, he, and, it, and, and it shows that you've had a conversation with someone about how you've trusted in Jesus, that you would also please let the cup pass by as well. But I'm going to have a, a moment of silence, and then I'll pray, and I'll have Trevor come up and help me pass the bread. Um, and once I come back up, we'll read from 1 Corinthians, pray together, and then partake of it together. Let's have a moment of silence.